Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion on OSHA's emergency temporary standard relating to COVID-19. This will stand as one of the monuments of occupational safety and health law, and we're going to discuss the opinion, what it meant, the reasoning that the justices used in arriving at their opinion, and what employers should expect next and what they can do in light of the Supreme Court decision on this, the January 19, 2022 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I am a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman right here in Washington, DC. And I'm an attorney who engages in the practice of occupational safety and health law representing management. And I'm fortunate because I'm joined today on this episode of the OSHA 3030 by my friend and colleague, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, thank you for joining us on the OSHA 3030. Pleasure as always, Marsh. Well, Taylor, we've got a great topic today, a monumental decision, and I think that we ought to start by saying that this begins as of January of 2022, it begins, oh, probably, um, I think that's about seven, eight, nine years, it's our ninth calendar year, or eight years total of doing the OSHA 3030, and all of our prior episodes of the OSHA 3030 have been libraried on our website, khlaw.com, so, and many of them are still as relevant today as, as they were when we created them. Uh, for the past many years, we've been doing this also as a podcast. So for those of you unaware, please subscribe to the podcast and remember, remember to rate or like it when you get it. Uh, with that said, Taylor Johnson, why don't we get into talking about what we'll talk about today? Absolutely. So, you know, we've got a really informative program lined up today. Uh, first, we're going to discuss the historical precedent for OSHA emergency temporary standards. Uh, then we will review the timeline of the COVID ETS, how we got to this point. Uh, next, you and I will provide an analysis of the Supreme Court's ruling. Uh, we will provide an update on state plan states. And most importantly, we'll discuss what happens next and what the employer community should do moving forward. And finally, at the conclusion of our program, uh, we're going to go off the record, turn off the recordings, and answer some pre-submitted questions from our audience. And we have some great questions today. That's right. We've been doing that for about one year now, this off the record portion. So this portion is recorded so that we can republish it as a podcast, but as well, we post it on our, as video with slides and the uh, audio on our website and it's, it's housed through YouTube. And so you can check it out there as well. Um, but the off the record portion is where we turn off all the recordings and that's just for you, the live audience that, uh, that attends and joins us on, on the scheduled date. So thank you for participating in the live audience. And we sent out an email a few days early and ask you if you have any pre-submitted questions that you'd like us to, to review in advance. And then we populate the the off the record section with those questions. But you may also use the uh, the the question and answer section of of the Zoom meeting uh, if you prefer. And we'll try and get to all of those. Those those go to the back of the line. And some of them, if they're longer, they're harder to read. We may be able to answer them offline as well in order to make sure everyone's questions get answered. Hopefully. So with that said, uh, you you said Taylor that we're going to start off talking about the precedent. Uh, for the use of emergency temporary standards. I think that is a, a good place to start. Um, the emergency temporary standard is a feature of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. So it's in the act that it allows the agency to go through creating a rule relating to safety and health in the workplace 
uh, provided that it goes through notice and comment rulemaking, what I'll call traditional rulemaking or notice and comment rulemaking. But there's also a provision that allows the agency in the context of an emergency to skip the uh, notice and comment uh, rulemaking for the time being and go straight to issuing an emergency temporary standard. Now that's sort of a trade-off. The trade-off being that they may only issue this tempor emergency temporary standard for 180 days. And during that 180 days, they may, they may do so only uh, while uh, promulgating the traditional notice and comment rulemaking. They must use that 180 days for traditional rulemaking purposes to implement a permanent rule in lieu of the temporary rule once the 180 days has transpired. Uh, there have only been a number of circumstances, a limited number of circumstances where the agency has used this extraordinary statutory power. And we've shown them here starting in 1971, shortly after the agency was created in the, uh, as a, a feature of the act uh, and going through 1983 with the asbestos emergency temporary standard. Almost all of them have been challenged and almost all of those, the challenge has been successful on one basis or another. Indeed, the Supreme Court noted in its opinion last week that there's only been one emergency temporary standard in all of these almost 50 years uh, of the creation of the, of the agency and the act uh, where an emergency temporary standard went unchallenged and survived in, in its entirety. And so that's an exceptional fact historically, which illuminated the Supreme Court justices decision and how it viewed the use of this extraordinary statutory power. That's right, Manish. And, you know, the day after the ETS was published in the Federal Register, you know, just to give sort of a sense of the timeline here, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals granted a temporary stay, putting implementation of the ETS essentially on hold. Uh, that stay was then lifted by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on December 17th, and from there, Justice Kavanaugh granted review of the Sixth Circuit's decision. Um, Justice Kavanaugh essentially stated that he was single-handedly granting review, but that the review would be handled after a hearing by the entire Supreme Court. Uh, that hearing took place on January 7th, as you can see here. And on January 13th, the Supreme Court opinion in National Federation of Independent Business versus OSHA and Ohio versus OSHA uh, granted two consolidated applications for a stay of the Sixth Circuit decision. And Manish, there was actually three opinions issued in relation to these two cases. Well, that's right. And uh, to point out uh, something that you mentioned, Taylor, that uh, Justice Kavanaugh single-handedly uh, granted review, that is uh, a unique feature in Supreme Court procedural rules where uh, an emergency hearing can be granted and or emergency review can be granted and that's expedited. And that can be done by any one justice. So that was within conformance of the rules. What was unusual was that he then said that this would be uh, done after a hearing in front of the entire Supreme Court. Um, so, so as you say, there were three opinions and that hearing was an interesting one. I, I sat in on the entire hearing. I got to hear the justices questions of all of the attorneys for, for the multiple parties, including the Solicitor General for the Department of Labor. And uh, I think that the nature of the questions was at least as informative as the answers that the participants provided. Uh, ultimately, as you mentioned last week, uh, the Supreme Court issued an opinion in the form of three separate opinions. Uh, one was the per curiam decision where, where uh, the, the majority issued their, their decision saying that, stating their belief that the, the party challenging the rule and 
uh, supporting the stay in the Sixth Circuit was likely to prevail uh, on the mer- underlying merits of whether or not OSHA has the statutory power to, to promulgate this particular rule. And, uh, and they, the Supreme Court therefore granted in the procurement decision the applicant's uh, petition for a stay uh, pending judicial review on the merits by the Sixth Circuit. There was also a concurring opinion uh, issued by Justice Gorsuch, uh, who was joined by Justices Thomas and Alito. So that would suggest that that the participants in the procurium decision, in addition to being joined by Justices Gorsuch, Thomas and Alito would have included Justice Robert, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and and that I think is is an important uh, feature of. Uh, but but we don't know who authored the procurium decision. Um, then there was a dissenting opinion uh, issued by uh, authored by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. And uh, in that dissenting opinion, the dissenting justices identified their bases for disagreeing with the majority opinion. So it was a 6-3 majority. That's right. And Manish, as you mentioned in the end, you know, the court granted the applications for a stay, a holding that the ETS was essentially tantamount to a public health mandate, uh, which would exceed OSHA's statutory power. So this is interesting. The justices, uh, now at this point, let's talk about the majority opinion, which was uh, at least included Justices Roberts, Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, as well as uh, Justices Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. Uh, The majority started out by identifying the threshold elements by which the Occupational Safety and Health Administration has to meet a standard for allowing them to use the emergency emergency temporary standard powers granted it by the statute. That's right. Uh, The first being that employees are exposed to a grave danger in the workplace, of course. That's right. And the second being that the emergency temporary standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Right. And, you know, the court states that although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, uh, the point that they wanted to to draw is that it's not an occupational hazard in most workplaces. This is a critical point that the majority opinion stressed in its decision. It stated that it had great doubt that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration was given the authority by Congress to regulate the kind of hazard that was not uniquely workplace oriented in nature or didn't originate with the, in the workplace or wasn't by some uh, measure increased or exacerbated in the workplace setting that, didn't, that Congress did not intend to give the agency the authority to regulate hazards that are essentially uh, prevalent in all aspects of society, but also happen to be manifest in the workplace as well. Noting that to do so would transfer or connote powers to the agency more akin to a public health agency rather than an occupational safety and health agency. That's an interesting opinion and it was prevalent in their questions. When I, when I listened to the hearing, I, I came to the conclusion that the questions were by many of the justices expressing grave doubt that this was originally Congress's intent. And the response by the, the parties varying based on, on the arguments they were advancing was that, of course, this was something that Congress had promulgated 50 years ago. 
but the Department of Labor said it was patent in, in the congressional intent by the fact that there was an emergency temporary standard provision. Uh, but of course, there wouldn't be any specific, anything specific in congressional expression of intent about this. They couldn't have foreseen it. So then there's the dissenting opinion. That's right. In that, you know, as you mentioned, this was issued by Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer. Um, essentially stated, you know, first off, uh, that COVID-19 does pose a grave danger, uh, particularly to workers. Um, so this, you know, in, in contrast with, with the main opinion in the case. And for support of this grave danger argument, uh, the dissenting opinion pointed out that, you know, as of the time of the rule, there were over 725,000 Americans dead and, and millions more had been hospitalized due to COVID-19. Um, you know, the dissent states that OSHA had in fact in the past regulated risks that originate both inside and outside the workplace. And also pointed out that in the American Rescue Plan Act, a Congress did in fact state its clear intent for OSHA to carry out COVID-19 uh, worker-related protection activities in the work environments of, of all kind. And the dissent states that the Supreme Court um, in, its, in its main opinion was elevating the judiciary over the regulatory agency, uh, OSHA in this case, charged with workplace safety and that instead it must balance the result of a stay versus what would happen if a stay was lifted. That last point, Taylor, is one of the elements of evaluating a uh, injunctive relief is a, a balancing of public interests. And, and the dissenting justices noted that there is a significant public interest in, uh, in making sure that the rule is put into effect immediately. Uh, first of all, they noted the lives that that the Department of Labor calculated would be saved. And second, they said that, you know, if, if a larger fraction of the workplace was vaccinated, then, then you would see attendance go up and businesses would keep running. And so they were uh, skeptical of the challengers uh, uh, to the rule, their assertion that this was an incredibly expensive rule to, to implement. I mean, I, I think that it's safe to say uh, that the argument was that it was an unbearably large burden to engage in the administration of the requirements as well as the procurement of tests, et cetera. So for those who, for whom the, the standard required by, by force of an accommodation that the employer pay. So, so they engaged in that analysis. And, and I think that when you look at these two opinions, Taylor, you see that they're, they're looking at different parts. They're emphasizing different parts of the analysis the dissenting opinion goes straight to the threshold questions of whether or not the agency can use this emergency temporary standard power as a question of whether or not there's a grave danger that's present and whether or not this rule is necessary. And the majority justices, uh, the justices aligned in the majority uh, focused on the step prior to that in their analysis, which is if you're going to um, accept that that there is a grave danger and that this the, the requirements of this standard will have a mitigating effect, the prior question to ask, the threshold question to ask is, does OSHA have the power to implement those requirements? Uh, interestingly, the concurring opinion, which was authored by Justice Gorsuch, uh, he, he stated that uh, when it comes to a major question, and this is an established part of Supreme Court doctrine, uh, that when it comes to a, a major question, one that has profound widespread societal impact, the Supreme Court must look more carefully at whether or not the regulatory agency is fulfilling a clear and unambiguous congressional intent, expression of intent. 
And so, so at least in his concurring opinion, he was most focused on that question, which was, even if you agree that OSHA has emergency temporary standard powers and that there is a grave danger that's present, when you talk about requirements that are this broad sweeping, he would like to see clear, unambiguous expression of congressional intent. And he opined that he did not see that. Uh, and as you pointed out, Taylor, the uh, Department of Labor's attorney argued that there was an expression, clear expression of congressional intent. And one example she cited too was the American Rescue Plan Act. So compelling arguments on both sides. Well, what does this mean now that, uh, that the Supreme Court has weighed in on this and has agreed that there should be a stay on the emergency temporary standard until such time as it's heard on the merits? Well, for one thing, in the meantime, there have been a number of state plans that have promulgated near identical rules under their requirement to promulgate a plan that is at least a standard that is at least as effective as the federal standard. And in the case of an emergency standard, they have to do so within 30 days, I believe. So that's expired and several states did so, uh, fulfilled their, their state plan duty to do so. Uh, Illinois and Minnesota jumped to mind. Of course, there were other state plans that had already issued their own standards, which were significantly different than the federal standard. Virginia, Michigan, California are good examples. So, so what becomes of those standards that were promulgated at, in light of or in the wake of the federal emergency temporary standard? Well, two of them, Illinois and Minnesota, have published statements, their occupational safety and health uh, agencies have published statements saying that they were suspending their emergency temporary standard in light of the Supreme Court decision. And so if you have establishments in those states, you can now rest easy that the state plan state is also viewing itself as under the stay, at least based on the principles expressed by the Supreme Court. So we covered what's next in terms of state plan states. Um, now from a, a procedural perspective, um, what happens now is that the case goes back to the Sixth Circuit for a ruling on the merits. Uh, the stay remains in place during Sixth Circuit review, as well as any second appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling that plaintiffs are likely to be successful on the merits is influential, um, but not binding. So there's not a 100% certainty that the plaintiffs challenging the ETS uh, will be successful in the Sixth Circuit. But that being said, it, it's certainly possible that OSHA withdraws the ETS uh, during the Sixth Circuit's review, uh, which would essentially moot the case. And also, um, you know, important to point out here in terms of in terms of the timeline that OSHA has until May 5th, uh, 2022 to implement a final rule to replace the ETS. Um, so that's certainly a deadline that, you know, the Sixth Circuit will have in mind when making its decision. Well, it's interesting. You're right, Taylor, because the Sixth Circuit may have until several weeks after that to hold a hearing and issue an opinion. Right. And if that's so then uh, then this may be mooted by force of uh, the, uh, the uh, Sixth Circuit opinion but, or by the permanent rule that OSHA might establish. And there's, there's any number of ways this could be mooted. OSHA could withdraw its emergency temporary standard. And so the, so the Sixth Circuit's evaluation of the merits of this case are, uh, I think, of, of great interest and the timing of it will be of great interest and, and could play a major, the timing itself could play a major role in how this turns out. So what's next? Well, as I mentioned, the, the standard for 
the, the emergency temporary standard, issuing an emergency temporary standard calls for the agency to promulgate traditional rulemaking during that 180 days that the emergency, temp, emergency temporary standard is in effect and that, uh, that it publish a permanent standard in its wake. And the comment process was opened up with the publication of the emergency temporary standard. Indeed, the comment process, uh, the deadline for filing comments is today, I believe. And so, so this is an important deadline because OSHA still has an opportunity to issue a permanent standard and on a different basis than the emergency temporary standard. The analysis of whether or not there's a plane danger, the, uh, the grave risk, sorry, the, the anal uh, analysis of whether or not this standard is absolutely necessary to have a reductive effect on the alleged hazard, they don't apply if there was traditional rulemaking. So what will apply is whether or not OSHA went through the proper rulemaking effort and, and considered the substantial evidence presented before it. Um, the Supreme Court anticipated this in its opinion, in the majority opinion, and stated that it's possible for OSHA to issue a standard relating to COVID-19 uh, risk management. Uh, and it provided that the agency issues a standard that's targeted to the risk it's addressing, then such regulatory activity would be plainly permissible. And I think that's interesting. I think that I, I, as I read that, I think that it could be cut two different ways, at least. One, by, by task or by industry. For example, we know that super crowded facilities, workplaces like the meatpacking industry uh, or, or nursing homes, uh, any kind of uh, group housing would, would qualify as having an elevated workplace-associated risk. Healthcare is a good example as well, obviously. Uh, and I note that on the same day, they heard a hearing right after this hearing uh, relating to the healthcare related standard. And that was upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, but the other way to do this would be to, to make sure that the requirements are targeted to the risk and that they are targeted to the workplace. So for example, where vaccination was a requirement that the Supreme Court cast doubt was within the agency's power because it it affected all of society, it affected people at home as well as when they were at work. Uh, mask usage would not. Mask usage could be targeted to just work. And the same goes for distancing practices, uh, the use of plastic barriers where possible, uh, hand washing as a re uh, required regimen. These could be implemented at, at the workplace without having any effect on a person's personal life. And that seems to me to be more narrowly tailored. And so it's theoretically possible that the agency could fashion a final rule that is mindful of the principles established by the Supreme Court and at the same time uh, could theoretically survive another challenge and, and go forward with uh, enforcing. So that's what we see as a possibility for notice and comment rulemaking. That's right, Manish. And in terms of what's next for, for other potential OSHA actions, um, we got some indication of what's coming down the road on January 13th um, when Secretary Walsh issued a statement. Uh, he said that, that OSHA will be evaluating all options to ensure workers are protected um, from the COVID-19 virus. Um, so just some of the options listed in his statement were the COVID-19 uh, National Emphasis Program. Um, there's also the general duty clause um, as a potential avenue uh, for OSHA to use. However, with respect to the general duty clause, you know, we wanted to point out that as the Supreme Court essentially said that this is 
you know, this being COVID-19 is not a workplace hazard, um, then under the general duty clause, it would not be a generally recognized hazard either. Um, a generally recognized hazard being one of the elements of the general duty clause of violation. Um, so, so that's something that you know, we'll keep an eye on moving forward and, and see how any you know, general duty clause enforcement cases with respect, with, to, uh, with respect to COVID-19 will play out. And finally, as the agency looks to protect workers from COVID-19 uh, using existing standards, you know, such as the, the respiratory standard, uh, for example, um, you know, we wanted to note the new uh, you know, maximum uh, penalties for willful uh, repeat violations, uh, which is $145,000, and the new maximum penalty for a serious or other than serious violation, which is uh, $14,502. Um, so something modest you know, to, to keep in mind moving forward. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. That that represents the single largest uh, inflation-based increase in the maximum citation uh, penalty amount uh, in in since the the inflation-based system was implemented a few years ago. Uh, it's an easily six percent increase over the uh, prior maximum for citation penalty amounts. So, Taylor, let's talk about what employers could do in light of this monumental decision. Uh, I'd say first of all. Today's the deadline. I hope that employers are working with their industry groups to prepare and submit comments. I think one of the comments that is fair play is that this standard should not be promulgated in light of the Supreme Court decision. But if the agency decides to go forward with one, it should be based on a particularized inquiry by each employer based on their tasks that are present in their workplace and the risks associated specifically with those tasks not an extant or pervasive uh, societal risk of COVID or people bringing societal or community-based transmission into the workplace, but based on the specifics of each task at the workplace. And that on that basis, the employer should employ its own discretion to, to uh, deploy the most uh, appropriate mitigative techniques uh, that, are, that are appropriate and, and calculated to reasonably calculated to have a reductive effect, things like mask usage or, or distancing or uh, uh, barriers and uh, exceptions where the tasks don't call for any of these like outdoor work, sparsely, uh, sparse density of, of workers or people uh, associated with the worker. Uh, those kinds of particularized inquiries should be um, the kind of features that the employer should be given discretion to determine on, on their own based on their own knowledge of their workplace. So I think that that's the, the kind of element that you might consider including in comments to the agency. Absolutely. Um, also monitoring for state regulations and state plan states. Um, you know, as, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you know, there's, there's certainly um, you know, a few states, Illinois, for example, where they're, they're staying their implementation of, of um, sort of their, their own ETS that would mirror the federal standard. Um, but that doesn't mean that something else might not happen down the road. So um, certainly much important to, uh, to make sure that, that um, we're monitoring state regulations in those state plan states. Yeah, Taylor, that's right. In fact, quite the opposite. President Biden, after the Supreme Court issued his decision, said that it now uh, devolves to the states and to private employers to implement requirements that will have a mitigative effect on the transmission of COVID. And so based on, on the president's uh, own statement, you can expect that some states will take up that call and promulgate some kind of rule, perhaps mindful of the limitations expressed by the Supreme Court. Uh, but nevertheless, you may see new versions of uh, standards, either emergency temporary standards or permanent standards being tried out uh, at the state level. 
So, so I think the next thing uh, I think that employers can do, Taylor, is to, to continue to develop policies that are mindful of guidance issued by the Centers for Disease Control and by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, so it's important to monitor those agencies for their guidance documents, as well as uh, deploy those guidance uh, elements that are applicable in your workplace and that make sense in your workplace as, uh, as you deem fit. Uh, where where those change where those changes in guidance uh, dictate changes in your own current practices? Absolutely, Manish. And, and one of the other things I think that employers could do as well is is tailor protections to the specific circumstances of the workplace. Um, so, is there you know is there um, uh, is, is it crowded, for example, on a meat packing floor, for example, um, would be one of the things that we would you know we would encourage employers to look at the specific you know um, specifically how COVID nineteen can impact their workplace and then generate protections that respond to those circumstances. Yeah, that's a good point, Taylor. That mirrors what I was saying that the comments should look like to the agency is to allow employers to make a particularized hazard assessment based on their own uh, job site and the particularities of it and the tasks being performed. And, and then to, to tailor their protections accordingly. I think that should be in the comments and, and you're right, Taylor, that should be what employers should begin doing uh, or probably have already been doing for quite some time. Uh, the next thing I'd say is that employers should document the source, every time they, they implement a policy uh, or practice, they should document the source for that uh, policy or practice. So if it came from a CDC guidance or it came from an Occupational Safety and Health Administration guidance, that should be documented to support the employer in why it arrived at that decision. And I think that that's, that kind of documentation will, will stand to protect employers hopefully a little bit better if they come across the kind of lawsuits that we've covered in the OSHA 3030, uh, the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island, for example. That's right. And just going off of that point in terms of, you know, protection from lawsuits and documentation, um, employers should also develop written safety programs uh, for COVID-19 protection measures, um, have a written program in place that documents all of the different protection measures that the employers is implementing. Well, Taylor, that was exactly 30 minutes. That's why we call it the OSHA 3030. And you got the last word on this OSHA 3030. Uh, thank you, Taylor, for joining me. Thank you all for participating. Don't forget, we're sticking around for an off the record chat with just the live participants. Uh, remember that you can catch this episode uh, in a day or so and all of our prior episodes on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Um, well, I should also point out that we are all on LinkedIn and we, we will rebroadcast this as a podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And this will also be available as slides and audio on our website, as well as through YouTube. You can just go straight to YouTube and, and Google it up, uh, search it up. And uh, finally, I'd say that the next episode that we're going to uh, all get together again for the OSHA 3030 will be scheduled for February 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. And so please spread the good word when you get this invitation to the folks in your organization's Office of In-House Counsel or to safety and health professionals in your organization or at other organizations. Your referrals are the lifeblood of the future of the program. We've been doing this for over eight years. We'd like to do this for eight more, but it requires, uh, and we're counting on your support in spreading the good word. Uh, so be a, a supporter and a promoter of the program when you get this email, just forward it along. Uh, we have sister programs for those organizations that are responsible for compliance with TSCA and REACH and FIFRA. We have pro programs uh, on those subjects as well. 
Uh, so please uh, pass the good word on about the Tosca 3030 and the Reach 3030, Wednesday, February 9th at 1 and 135, uh, respectively, and for the FIFRA 3030 as well. So thank you again. Thank you, Taylor Johnson, for joining me on this OSHA 3030. Thank you to all of the participants in the OSHA 3030 this month. And if you have any questions that we haven't addressed and you want to use the question and answer feature, stick around. Otherwise, shoot us an email or uh, give us a, a call. I love chatting about OSHA law and don't mind the emails or calls. Uh, especially if it's a quick question I can answer off the top of my head and it's a chance to, to connect. So, so with that said, we are going to go off the record um, and thank you all. And we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Until then, stay safe.